and welcome to Global Digital Futures Podcast brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipo Mapondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we're speaking to lecturer Matti Pohinen about research and technology in hard-to-reach locations. Matti is an academic working at the intersection of digital anthropology, philosophy, and data science. His work developing innovative research methods for hard-to-reach populations has taken him from Kenya and Ethiopia to India. Now he's back at SOAS and is a lecturer in global digital media. Hi, Matty. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So can you start by telling us a bit about your work in Africa and India, please? Okay. So uh, if you look at contemporary digital cultures and uh, there has been a lot of change that has been happening in the last, let's say, 10 to 20 years. And I'm, uh, I guess, unfortunately old enough that uh, I started doing my PhD work in the early 2000s. I started doing field work in India at that point in mm. 2004, 2005. And so people who have grown up in the social media environment, yeah. they don't really remember the early days, but yeah. that was pre social media. So at that point, things yeah. like blogging were the big craze in uh, the idea of global digital cultures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so a lot of the things that we see today were still evolving. And so I was doing field work actually in international news production mm-hmm. in uh, India. And I was interested in how uh, global information flows affect news production at the local level and how information becomes localized and increasingly given the digitization of how this happens. Yeah. So how uh, global news, international news becomes translated and uh, how news organizations are increasingly using digital technology mm-hmm. to do this process and so simple stuff like accessing information and uh, accessing news news articles and accessing images and so I started getting in that and at that point there were two major developments that happened and uh, one of them was blogging became a very big yeah. thing and mm-hmm. the whole idea of citizen journalism and so I started part of my research I started getting in, interested in working with a lot of uh, kind of cutting edge slightly off the beat bloggers in India and uh, so that's when the Asian tsunami happened in 2004 2005 Okay. So there was a big crisis that happened in uh, especially Sri Lanka and there were a lot of uh, destruction that happened because yeah. of the waves that hit. And so a lot of the bloggers activated very quickly and yeah, they started doing yeah. a lot of work around citizen journalism using mobile phones to transmit information out of the crisis struck areas. Okay. And this very uh, kind of cutting edge use of uh, technology in a way to try to bring information from the ground up and also, yeah. also at the same time challenge maybe the dominance of some of the kind of old new established sources. new sources. And yeah. So there's a lot of kind of conflicting things going on at that point and including things like I've, one of the key findings that I found that Google had become one of the key factors in news production. Interesting. So at that of, time? At that point. So a lot, of, a lot of journalists were dealing with like local Indian news channels so they were using Google to find images for their articles and okay. and again very kind of ad hoc way and it was yeah. and so at that point it started becoming very big and so in the, the reason I started with kind of like the old school stuff is that then I have been getting interested in developing that ever since. Yeah. So post PhD for many reasons including the fact that I grew up in Ethiopia I started going to Ethiopia and so what I've been interested in is always at this kind of uh, emerging, the idea of emerging digital, digital cultures. cultures so yeah. At that point, it was blogging. Twitter was coming at age in India. But then when I went to Ethiopia, being a country with very limited internet access, I yeah. started getting interested in mobile phones. And so I started working with, with mobile phones in the Ethiopian context. And we did some pilot work around uh, kind of how mobile phones potentially can affect rural populations in Ethiopia. And what years was this? This was around 2008, 2009. Okay. So this was, again, Ethiopia, things just slowly emerging. Yeah. 
slowly emerging into and um, you're getting first time you get mobile connections and uh, so I did some I there's a book chapter I wrote on that some on terms of like environmental activism and use of mobile phones in Ethiopia in Ethiopia okay. at that point and so f- through many different uh, kind of coincidences and I got in, interested in another project which mm. again um, we are dealing with like the slightly out of ordinary development in digital culture so yeah. Ethiopia with at that point about three to four percent internet penetration rates this was 2010 and so I started working for Oxford University on a major project on social media hate speech okay and again the idea of um, kind of social media conversation politics very dominant in the European context but nobody had really bothered to look at Ethiopia where there was it was only like three four percent yeah however it had played a major role in the kind of ethnic conflict and the politics there in what way so uh, in terms of Ethiopia has always had a very kind of a contested uh, political system and so the government and a lot of the opposition voices have been very innovative in the use of limited technology to bring bring kind of alternative voices and the government had a very strong crackdown then right. on press freedoms and so social media had emerged as the kind of space where you potentially could have some conversations and um, especially linking the diaspora and, and the connections there so then uh, social media was perhaps the space where that conversation was still being had but among a very small percentage of the population uh, uh, but at the same time it's a small population urban middle class uh, educated but it did have two impacts one of them was that it's the opinion leaders in a way so they're the ones and a lot of the stuff in terms of that was produced in forums and in um, social media and in online websites were also printed okay so yeah. there was this kind of relay effect to also beyond the, the kind of immediate social media yeah so it was a very kind of a unique um, very distinctly different type of yeah. uh, social media conversation so we worked for a couple of years on online hate speech and found all kinds of interesting things around there and so it was again how to develop theoretically methodologically how to understand in a country like Ethiopia so I then yeah. um, did a lot of work on trying to look at comparatively between different digital cultures in different parts of the world and yeah. what the differences are and part of the work was working for an organization called Africa's Voices Foundation. Mm-hmm. Where are they based? So it was an organization that was launched out of University of Cambridge. Right, But then yes. it was based in Nairobi. And the organization working slightly more in the non-governmental sector was okay. trying to develop methods of trying to reach these hard-to-reach populations, places like Somalia or rural Kenya or Uganda. And so using things like interactive radio, mobile phones, uh, different ways of using like data analysis for languages that have not been as served by it. So we combined a lot of work with computational scientists and uh, yeah. researchers and so on and so forth. And it works for like UNICEF and Oxfam and some of the major organizations as the kind of intelligence yeah. gathering, trying to listen to people's voices in their own, own kind of idiom and own kind of vernacular. When we think of digitization or digital projects in hard-to-reach areas, recently there was a talk by Vice President Mohamedou Baumia on the importance of developing soft infrastructures in order to start these digitization projects. So his example of soft infrastructures was national IDs and also digital records of addresses. Can you describe the necessity of such soft infrastructures in sight of your research and what did this impact have on your studies? So I guess Kenya would be an interesting example is if you look at the kind of digital development in Kenya it's quite different what we see as a common trajectory especially mm-hmm. in the western context and so one of the classical examples would be uh, Mpesa yes. which is the mobile based banking transfer system payment yeah. system that has in a way leapfrogged some of the earlier kind of dynamics of having banking systems and so because that kind of infrastructure of identification people's having ID numbers having that doesn't yeah. really exist so the one of the challenges in terms of like digital development 
development or development in general is to create a system of knowing who people are because Ethiopia itself don't quote me if I'm wrong on this one but population itself varies around 10 million depending on who estimated so people really don't know how many people live yeah. there so yeah. it becomes a massive logistical challenge of who are the, in fact all the people so CIA estimates a certain number and then if you're some organization so there's like a 10 million variance of even how many people would live in the country so in order to get into like and this goes to like micro businesses it goes mm-hmm. into like simple stuff like banking being able yeah. to register if you don't have that level of identification that people don't know even who you are so it creates a complete absence of trust because mm-hmm. uh, you have to go through manual multiple process of verification to know that you can trust who the person is because you get all kinds of of course corruption different yeah. ideas and all that stuff so I think in a way what the talk about digitizing again and economy was that it's important to create this kind of base level of trust that you know that the person that you're talking to is in fact is a person and he lives somewhere and so then the consistency of being one person can then lead to things like we can get a bank loan so it has happened in different ways and in Ghana they're doing it very systematically by the government in other countries in Ethiopia they were doing something similar very state-led which hasn't been as far as I know it hasn't gone as far but in Kenya it has happened like the M-Pesa system has so the trust has not happened through the government necessarily but by linking individuals to their phone their, their kind of phone bank combination and thus being able to do a complex transactions and, and the idea there is that if you have this system of soft instruction in place then all kinds of other things can develop absolutely and I imagine for research it is really important to also be able to follow and track your research and the subjects well I mean tracking is a quite a strong word to use it uh, <laughs> tracking it's uh, I think that's what some other people like to do but methodologically you need to if you talk about large yeah. numbers of people you need to tie them to a certain identifier right so I mean the best way to do it is you tie them to a phone number okay so again it's a bit more tricky phone numbers because then multiple people might be using the same phone so True. then uh, places that phones are not a luxury you might have three True. four people using the phone yeah. for various purposes and at various times of the day there's still kind of complex issues around how to justify or just kind of verify Manage if it's that. actually individual who's using it so there's like dynamics of men tend to use it during the daytime whereas yeah. uh, women have certain hours and then kids might use it or young people later and so that's itself already an interesting research it's, did you have questions like that playing into your research in my research we did use in the social media stuff it's very easy because I mean the key question is is the person that they claim to be actually mm-hmm. the person that they are because for a common issue in social media research are people the real people that they claim to be or are they just performing some identity for yeah. a purpose and then you have all kinds of government trolls and fake accounts and yeah. things and, but then you have to take it at face value you can't go too much in that in terms of doing the research on the hard to reach populations we did play a lot of combination of uh, mobile phone based research but also having being, uh, focus groups and other things to kind of different understandings but in a way it's more about and how to understand how segments of population think and act it's not really how individuals so it's, it's about yeah. trying, trying to get broader trends yeah because that's what people are interested in so I actually did have a question on how data then is managed because you do have questions of data security but that's not only in terms of a human breach of security what about the infrastructure to make sure that your data is stored safely and it's not corrupted or lost so uh, I'd say question is not necessarily as much about infrastructure but it's about human capital that the infrastructure for doing anything encrypted and backups and everything is in place but then the weak link is always the person there when we are dealing with reasonably sensitive information around social media hate speech politics in Ethiopia we did have a data strategy in place where we tried to keep everything so that they wouldn't be easily accessible to people who should not necessarily be seeing that information even though it's mostly public data yeah we did find out afterwards that we did have minders probably following us when we're doing the research even though we're collaborating with the university there and we have even government collaboration at that point but again it's uh, it's a very complex uh, yeah that's how things happen usually and you just have to accept it and so there are a lot of organizations that teach this kind of data management so the knowledge is there it's just a matter of implementing like but there are organizations within those hard to reach regions or basically when you do research on 
like hard reach populations, you do things like mobile based research. So the data okay. will come to Nairobi or it won't. Okay. So the data won't be stored in um, those remote locations. Right. So okay. it's more like the end yeah. point of channel of being able to ask questions. But so in, in that sense, it's more about how to manage the mobile data and, and how to keep that. So that's what I was quite interested in. Like, how does that work? Because if you're in a place where there's no internet or there's or limited internet, no hard drives or other advanced hardware, how would you manage that? So mobiles, basically, you can set up a system where you communicate via mobile. So the mobile is the endpoint. So the communication okay. goes back and forth. And so central storage will be, let's say, Nairobi. So then that's not really an issue. So the question is more, how do you then reach people who are beyond the internet, beyond? So you okay. have people who reach, live in areas that don't have electricity, for instance. There is a lot of, again, this is where it gets interesting is that even though we think that the digital society ends at the, maybe the level of electricity, which cuts about, I don't know, half the people outside yeah. the world outside it, there's still, people still communicate outside those things. So, yeah. so things like you have solar batteries where you can have a phone without having electricity. That's quite common yeah. in some parts. So people, they're like little entrepreneurs have set up solar batteries. You pay them a little money, you charge your phone and so you might still have network connection Absolutely, yeah. without electricity. And, and some of the more innovative stuff that I've been kind of following that people have been doing is you can also create all kinds of outreach programs by using memory cards of mobile phones. So if you take like a nomadic population in northern Kenya, if you want to get some educational material, but there's no other way of reaching them, there's some of them will still have phones. So you create this memory cards and you stick in the phone so you can still use the phone as a kind of... Yeah. So there's a lot of things that can be done that even goes beyond just uh, when you're saturated with social media and uh, <laughs> hyper-fast smartphones and connections. You would never think about this. Thing. You forget there's a world out there. One of my one of my first ever Twitter updates was from a town in Ethiopia where I said, I'm now on Twitter. I don't have electricity, but I have candlelight. But the, the phone worked. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, we had a car battery that provided the energy. And where was the 3G there was no network? Th no 3G. There was none, no. It was just text-based. Okay. Or kind of, you could okay. still communicate with Twitter by text at that point. So what are some of the moves for such populations to become easier to reach? So, for example, global digital companies, they already have presence in some hard-to-reach places. Google is in Zimbabwe. They sponsor hackathons there. Microsoft have a headquarters in Johannesburg. Facebook's Free Basics. It's available in Bangladesh, Pakistan, and 20 other countries. And they've also just laid 500 kilometers of internet cables in Uganda. So do you know of any other projects in Africa and India and which international companies or organizations are leading those projects? Well, first thing to mention here would be the Chinese in terms of uh, infrastructure development and mo cheap mobile phone sets. I think the Chinese are leading. The last I read, you can get a phone for like quasi-smartphone for about 10 bucks in Kenya now because the Chinese have been... Similar in Zimbabwe, yeah, actually. Yeah, so you can do it. So yeah. I think in terms of like the, some of the hardware infrastructure, a lot of the kind of Chinese companies have. As a Finnish person, fondly remembering when the entire world used Nokia phones, <laughs> now it has unfortunately been the Chinese that have taken over the phones that are being used by the low economic segments. So there's two different types, two, three kind of quasi, but on the one hand, you have a lot of companies coming mentioned and yes. they, have, they have their research centers, uh, they have innovation labs, uh, very kind of, the, I mean, the simple answer is that there's a whole untapped market that they want to get yes. into. So there's a reason why Facebook wants to connect the world to this uh, kind of free service so they yep. use Facebook yep. and, and that'll sustain their business models. And, and if that happens, then eventually you'll be able to sell ads and do some profit for populations that haven't been a part of it. Same with Google, same with Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft used to be known. They have gotten a more, become slightly better in terms of corporate practices, but they used to do a lot of quite aggressive uh, Windows marketing in, in countries like India at some point. Yeah. They get You provide free Windows, so then people get kind of, it's like platform dependency and then try to yeah. get like Linux, which would be an open source in terms of getting them off. And so yeah. it, in a way, you can't be really naive about it, why companies are there. And then you have a lot of organizations, both NGOs and what they call INGOs, which are UN major organizations who have their own innovation labs. And so you have UN 
Global Pulse, which works out of Uganda. So they do all kinds of trying to harness like computational big data stuff for partially linked to their work, but also kind of developing solutions that would be more appropriate because these are the organizations that work in the development sector and their innovation is targeted towards kind of making that better. And research centers, so you do have a lot of quasi-company funded research centers and American universities who do work on things like liberation technology and at Stanford and all kinds of sustainable innovation labs and all okay. these things which are funded, which the whole idea is again slightly questionable. I have my doubts about that by bringing um, a certain type of digital technology to uh, rest the world, uh, suddenly a lot of problems that exist will, will vanish automatically. And so there's a lot of that happening yeah. also in terms of American universities and other things working. And then you have a lot of domestic organizations, companies as well, and they are also emerging. There's this kind of big infrastructure of innovation yeah. happening in a lot of places. And, and they are interestingly also clustered around certain centers. So Nairobi is a big one. And yeah. I think, I think yeah. Ghana is a big one. But of course, then you have a lot of parts that are completely left out. Like if you go to like Chad or Central African Republic, yeah, exactly. almost nothing happening there. You don't hear about anything there. Yeah. So it's like there's another kind of inequality in terms of even within that dynamic. But as you said about the corporations, because, you know, I also did have questions around like the motives behind their interest in being in these regions. What value is the data that's provided from their research or from serving adverts or from people using your platforms? What is the value of that data to them? So the simple fact the Facebook business model is based on the micro-targeting ads for consumers. And so the value is basically the, what they call the, the different terms for bottom of the pyramid, the long tail, the next 500 million, whatever you want to call it. But the idea is that they'll eventually become quasi-consumers and, right. and into the digital economy. So by being able to be there already involved, this just dominated the market in terms of being able to, uh, what Facebook does, is sell ads and make a profit yeah. out of that. While providing, of course, the service that they do, people people communicating on the platform. So, I mean, there's, there's some philanthropist uh, motives, uh, but I think the primary motive still is... Uh, it's just commerce. It's basically untapped market, if you put it in a simple way. And again, both in good and bad, They and Google the same and all the other companies. So. I always feel quite disillusioned by the fact that, you know, all of these innovations is mostly serving just commerce, really, in the end. What other possibilities do you think could exist? Even though it's serving commerce, it does have a lot of room for kind of digital development. So by having the infrastructure there, people can do things. So if you look at Mpesa, for instance, it is commercial enterprise. It's yeah. isn't yeah. meant to be a, the kind of sub, I could call side effect or the consequence of that model also leads to all kinds of new ideas of digital development, which is not necessarily a bad thing. So there has been a lot of, in terms of alternative examples of more state-led initiatives. So Ethiopia, for a long time, they tried to do their own state-led kind of infrastructure based on education and connecting villages and stuff like that. And I mean, it worked for a while, but again, it wasn't a grand success because what the big companies do, they have the resource and the technical yeah. should do it much more effectively. So there's there's this kind of double-edged sword about it that the governments are not really capable of doing things at such scales and so effectively because they don't have the money nor the resources, but then the companies can do it. But then obviously that the comes motives. with the, the host of problems that you have to be at least cognizant about. But I think it's interesting that people are now at least talking about yeah. all these things much more than they did before. And you speak about resources and, you know, training. What sort of hubs or training or skills can be disseminated in these hard-to-reach regions just to encourage technology and innovation? So there is, again, again a double-edged sword. And knowing Nairobi quite well, there's a whole startup infrastructure that has yeah. emerged that is also creating solutions that are much more catered or customized to local needs and so mobile-based applications. So things yeah. like creating apps for Matmatato systems or all these things. So there's, there's a lot of stuff like that happening. You have organizations like iHub and, and other organizations that have been trying to lead the way of creating a very local ecosystem for innovation. So it's again a question of where because uh, that's still very urban. So the startup yeah. culture is still very urban. They might create solutions that are more catered towards the rural communities. Yeah. But so once you go beyond the threshold of uh, not having literacy, I think the mm. digi 
digital mm. stuff is maybe a bit premature just get them learn how to read first so maybe just give them books no, you, That's don't, true. you don't need to get them a fancy tablet so and then once they have the literacy and books and other things then you might want to think oh maybe they should learn how to code next so that is true okay if you do have the literacy um, levels up which yeah it goes without saying what other are there any programs that are happening or there's a lot of youth employment programs and again it's a you have to be slightly skeptical that just by learning how to code you will suddenly solve, solve the problem of youth employment yeah. in different places and I'm a friend of mine who works in the startup ecosystem in India he's just joking that now the artificial intelligence will come so it'll just about 200 million people will lose their jobs because the jobs that they have been doing is not really the creative edge of it. yeah. it's more about just the kind of grunt work that needs to be done so again it's that fact that you can code might not be necessarily the only way to think about it but I mean is there a certain kind of creative use of digital technology or digital possibilities for leapfrogging some of the some of the kind of infrastructural problems yeah. and if combined with a good strategy I think Rwanda has been quite progressive in terms of what they have been doing and despite its minor political issues but at the same time they have been quite good in trying to develop a more kind of stateless strategy of how to use digital technology as a part of the infrastructure mm-hmm. and part of the development so it's again very case by case because countries are so different and at such level, of, uh, level yeah. of infrastructure and uh, human capital that is true and finally let's talk about hard infrastructure so Africa has fewer legacy systems or tech presidents so you spoke about um, M-Pesa which I think is something that was a creative use of technology that emerged from that India is advancing much faster I was reading about their several billion dollar startups um, and they have 450 million smartphone users so there's high bell penetration what are the possibilities for alternative forms of the internet and other digital solutions in hard to reach regions such as blockchain and such I will go in reverse so I think blockchain uh, may be a bit premature to go into a, there's possibility in terms of the decentralized structure but it's so kind of cutting edge that I don't see it necessarily being popularized for the time being in terms of development there are there are ways of doing it then, but it has to probably happen first that it becomes much more widely adopted Yeah. so they do experiments in blockchain but it tends to be run by um, a certain kind of technologists or hackers who are based out of Europe or the US and, but yeah, it's getting there there'll be new things happening we don't know exactly what the level of disruption is going to be because uh, there's a lot of hype around it but it could change the kind of way things are developed so I think the question about hard infrastructure has a lot of components yep. I started off from returning back to basics so we don't need to go all the way to blockchain we can go to electricity you can have things like systematic and sustained electricity and internet connection which should be something that is still lacking in most places yep. to have fast internet connection even or mobile connection so like in Ethiopia there are parts that you will have to walk for a day to get your mobile connection just to make a phone call so wow. again so we are still yeah. far away from uh, going all the way to blockchain or right. whatever the latest stuff is there yeah. so then a lot of the stuff is being developed and so then it comes down first infrastructure to give basic access and so if people would have basic internet access then you can start building yeah. on top of that because then it opens up the next level of doing things so I think one thing that is also important to mention is that how the internet is increasingly being centralized and also at the hardware level the kind of new services like that are being used like Amazon Web Services and, and Google and other things so they are based out of server because that's where the traffic is catering most of the European and maybe Chinese market so again there's this kind of infrastructure gap so technically you can link stuff from uh, rural Kenya to an Amazon server but there are so many steps of the way that it actually can be a very slow connection so there are all kinds of imbalances so, so you're I'm, saying that they would need to have their servers on the continent what I would like to see would be and it might be in terms of hardware development that you would have local companies that would start setting up local hubs Okay. and this kind of decentralized model potentially would be at least in the beginning stages a more sustainable way of going forward is that costly to set up if you have businesses it could happen so it's, it's, a, it's a question of scale so they haven't been able to do it because the big companies do it much cheaper but I mean things like peer-to-peer networks so you can have connections between villages without actually having to link to the internet so there are all how kinds. does that work so you create a kind of decentralized network between different people for instance so if you're in a very tight 
immediately populated location you can just do it by the phones and you just need one contact point the internet and it kind of shares the internet across seven different things so if you are more distributed you have to send like nodes where you can link so you can start creating a more decentralized architectures mm-hmm. for connecting the internet which might be more suitable for the geography and, and that part instead of having this cloud-based system where you have everybody connecting to the server in somewhere in Europe so there are ways and local companies could jump in and Ghana a good example that okay let's they could set up the hubs for that so if there was if there was interest in development that would take away a lot of global imbalances of how the infrastructure is being done and it would take away the fact that you have to pull really expensive wires across large parts of land so and they are like in Ethiopia the problem was they when they try to get wires to capital the wires get stolen all because you are dealing with like long tracks of land and so yeah. there's so I mean very simple problems but oh uh, no big problems I mean, in Zimbabwe the, they steal electricity wires I no, can't exactly. tell you so, I mean, how that's the very frustrating kind of, that is on a daily but that's the <laughs> kind of reality reality of it yeah, so again yeah, yeah. if we think about it on a very abstract blockchain level we are still kind of yeah. saying okay there are basic things that need to be first mm-hmm. first addressed and then blockchain might for the model for doing that but well there's a lot of talk about it in Africa with a few blockchain hubs like in South Africa mm-hmm. they have conferences in Nigeria so do you think it's just hype and talk then well it's the, the way kind of digital development works is that it's both hype and both disruptive there is a lot of hype around it because the people who are talking about it need to be funded right Yes. Of course, they exa- not exaggerate, but of course, they believe in their ideas. And so we won't be able to know for the next, maybe in five years, we can actually see what the consequence of that will be. So, yeah, no, it is being talked about a lot. Well, the reason why it's also being talked about in the African context, because it's a decentralized system. I know what I mentioned. So you could do a peer-to-peer internet network based on blockchain technology, which would be one way of cutting also the soft infrastructure problems. problems yeah. Because it's, again, a way of identifying people based on their kind of unique identifier. But I haven't seen it very widely implemented mm-hmm. outside, like talked about in conferences and, and saying that it's this next big thing. But yeah. Yeah. I'm still waiting to see that where it actually becomes yeah. really used. Now it's used mostly for Bitcoin markets, which are, I don't know exactly what, how it goes up and down. And yeah, at yeah, one yeah. point you make millions and next time it collapses. And exactly. It, so yeah. it's very chaotic at this point. Do you have examples where peer-to-peer mobile connectivity is working really well? I don't, know how, I, don't know, I don't know how well it's working. So uh, there's an app called FireChat, which was developed for the use in crowded concerts. Because when you have a big concert situation, the internet connection or the mobile connection becomes unreliable because of the mass of people. So it was a peer-to-peer communication network based on like, I think, Bluetooth or you have to be quite close to people, but it works in crowded situations. Yeah. So then it got picked up in Hong Kong where they used it in uh, the um, umbrella protests because the government tried to shut down the connection so they could still maintain communication mm. without having that actual connection to the internet. So then the reason I'm just saying that I don't know because when I, when I was in Ethiopia the last time I was sitting in some cafe in the north of Addis in Piazza and I suddenly had my phone open I realized that they had a fire chat connection there. So I didn't know. I never had the time to go actually check if they use it widely, but yeah. I've seen it being, I've just seen signs of being used, but I haven't had the time to go explore more in detail. But I suspect these are the things that we don't really know as much. You need people to go and, and look, look on the ground what, and yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Because things change very quickly, so it might be something different in the next six months. And any other possibilities that you wanted to touch on before we end? Anything you're excited about or interested in? I'm really interested in how artificial intelligence debates become refracted or become changed in the context of countries like Ethiopia. Okay. And they have set up their first artificial incubation lab in Ethiopia. And in addition, they have set up, uh, there are some people who are trying to, again, change the debate for what would be appropriate for the local context. Yes. So that's something that I'm uh, slowly, increasingly getting interested in. And who set that up, the hub? It's kind of uh, computer scientists. I'm, I'm sure From that, Ethiopia. So I'm sure I didn't check. They must have some European funding because okay. that's how usually things happen. But but again, uh, these things are now starting to pop up and, and starting to be increasingly popular everywhere. So I'm interested, not really, again, believing the hype, but seeing how it becomes used in different ways and, yeah. and what's going on so that's some, something would be quite interesting there's a lot of stuff stuff is that's going on you don't really see it 
when you're when you're based in London, so you're, you're quite yeah, you have disconnected. Yeah, on the ground. The UK and Europe is uh, light years behind, like the, the the cool innovative stuff. So you don't really see much going on from here. You need to be there. Well, thank you, Matty. A lot of interesting insights to discuss there. So you can learn more about Matty's work at www.mattypohonen.com. That's M-A-T-T-I-P-O-H-J-O-N-E-N.com. Uh, for a view on how the internet is experienced globally and also how some countries are creating their own versions of Google and Facebook, read Almost 50% of the World is Online or What About the Other 50% on the Guardian website. For more on the opportunities and implications of tech corporations investing in developing countries, read the Wall Street Journal article, Facebook Pushes into Africa. You can read more about India's billion-dollar tech startups in the Bloomberg article, India has already hit a record number of $1 billion startups this year. And the BBC article, Is Blockchain Living Up to the Hype? questions whether the Bitcoin revolution has come to fruition and some limitations of the technology. You can find the SOAS Coding Club at www.soascodingclub.com. Follow us on Facebook at SOAS Coding Club and on Twitter at SOAS Coding Club. And that's all for today. But we're here every two weeks. So don't forget to tune in to discover more of what's happening in the global digital futures. (laughs) 